Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin, and today we're discussing the future of the world economy. And I'd like to open this episode by highlighting how we really are in uncharted territory here. There has never been another time in history where the entire world economy has shut down, uh, certainly not in modern history. And I think the best corollary is probably World War II, where the U.S., you know, there was no normal restaurants open, all normal business activities were shut. But the difference between that and now is that there were all of these activities around the war, preparedness for the war. There were people working in factories to make bombs, to make, uh, you know, trucks, all sorts of war equipment. And right now the differences were just totally closed. So what impact is that going to have in the long run? We really don't know. And even though we were able to shut off the world economy fairly quickly, it's sort of like with an old car, it's easy to shut it off, but it might not be as easy to get it up and running again, uh, certainly not at full capacity, full speed. So I'd like to take today's episode to explore the likely impact that shutting off the world economy is going to have on the U.S.'s economy, but also other economies throughout the world, including China, you know, Latin America, Asia. And let me say right now that I don't pretend to have all the answers. No one person has all the answers. So I'll be relying heavily on some of the experts that I've been listening to and following who I think have a really great lens on this situation. One of those experts is Ray Dalio. He is a really successful investor. He started one of the most successful hedge funds in the world, Bridgewater Associates. And he's really made it his mission to study the trends and the cycles of boom and bust throughout history, throughout all the great empires and how that has affected the economy in each of those cases. Uh, I also want to explore some of the ideas from Chamath. He is a venture capital investor who also is very savvy and has a really interesting contrarian take on things. So let's start with Ray Dalio. And in order to really understand Ray Dalio's framework, you need to understand three concepts, and that is the short-term debt cycle, the long-term debt cycle, and productivity. And if you have a sense for where we are with each of these concepts, you can predict what is likely to happen in the economy in the future. So let's start with productivity growth because that is probably the easiest to understand. Basically, productivity is output per hour worked. So imagine you have two different villages with the same number of people, the same exact raw materials, but one village has been making a certain type of good for ages and ages, and so they've gotten really good at it. They've written down the best possible processes, they've practiced it, it's part of their culture, they work really hard, and the other village, maybe they're a little bit lazy, Maybe it's their first time trying to build this type of product. So even though they have the same exact number of resources and number of people, that first village would be far more productive. You know, one hour work by someone in that village would create far more output than one hour of work in the other village. So you'd expect that over time, productivity growth would increase right? We have the internet now, we have software tools, we're all using Slack, we're all doing video conferences. It makes sense that we would have greater productivity now than, let's say, in the 1970s. But something that's really strange, and a lot of people have wondered what the reason might be for this, is that productivity growth hasn't really moved much since the 1970s. It's basically been moving at a snail's pace, which means that we haven't really gotten more efficient at performing our jobs with all of this new technology, certainly not to the degree that you would expect. And one example to highlight this is, think of the education sector. There have been more and more administrators added to universities more and more administrative costs 
college has gotten more expensive, and yet that doesn't mean they're accepting more students, and it doesn't mean the quality of the education they're giving those students is any better. It really is a case of bureaucratic bloat, and that's sort of an example of just our society being fat and happy and not doing things in the most efficient way because we were in a bull market that was going on for a really long time. And you can definitely see this in other sectors as well. The healthcare sector also has seen a lot of administrative bloat and a lot of people who are really assessing profitability and deciding who should be able to get what sort of claims approved. And it's not like the quality of our healthcare has gotten better. It's really just that healthcare may have gotten slightly more profitable and that's the real mission of the administrators. So, and then of course in the business world, there's the rise of what's called bullshit jobs. And there, there was a whole book written about that phenomenon by the same title. And this is, you know, I'm sure everyone knows some people who have an office job where they go to a lot of meetings, they sit in front of a computer all day, but really they're just looking at memes and reading articles and they're not actually contributing that much. You know, they're doing a lot of work theater uh, where maybe it looks good on the roster to have someone who's business development lead or whatever their position is, but the reality is they don't really need someone for that role. It could just as easily be done by another person on their team. And we've seen this play out throughout the economy, and this is one possibility why there hasn't been productivity growth, but whatever the reason may be, it's clear. We have not been getting more efficient at creating goods and services since the 1970s. This is something that Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein talk about pretty often, that for all the futurists who talk about AI and how we're on exponential curve and Moore's law, that may be true in the realm of computers and computer science and software applications, but it really hasn't been true for other parts of science and technology. It's not like we've created some grand new theory of physics or that we've really made major strides in chemistry or any of the other major fields. And they liken it to, it's like we're on the Star Trek ship and we have the Star Trek supercomputer, but we don't have any of their other technology like teleportation or any of the other tech they have in that series. So all of this is to say that because we have not been very productive or very efficient, it means that there's a lot of fat that could be cut from companies and from the workforce, which is tough because it means that a lot of people may lose their job because they're not, they're not seen as being uh, fundamentally necessary to that company. The good news and the silver lining is that an economic crisis like this it almost has a way of clearing out some of the companies that perhaps are weaker, perhaps are a little more bloated, and it may set the stage for real productivity growth in the future. Now, that's the first concept that's important to note, and let's just remember, productivity growth is important for seeing how well an economy is doing, and our productivity growth, it's not looking so good. Now let's look at the short-term debt cycle. So when you look at economies throughout history, there tend to be these five to eight year cycles of boom and bust. There's a little expansion followed by a little contraction every five to eight years because when times are good, people spend money, they take out loans, they invest in new businesses, and all of that spending and investing becomes income for other people who then take out loans and buy cars and houses and start new businesses. And this process feeds on itself as the economy grows. But central banks, they don't want the growth to get too out of control. So as the economy grows, they will raise interest rates, which makes borrowing more expensive. So that disincentivizes people to borrow money. And therefore, the economy starts to slow and it starts to move in the other direction. It contracts, people spend a little bit less. They tighten up their wallets. Other people tighten up their wallets because they're not getting as much income. 
there's less new businesses created, less new houses bought. And then when it gets to a certain point, the government wants to re-incentivize spending, so then they move the interest rates down closer to zero. And you can see this cycle happen. It almost, you can envision it as like a slinky that's kind of like going up the stairs or going down the stairs. And what's key about the short-term debt cycle is that it can be controlled by central banks raising and lowering interest rates. We witnessed the short-term debt cycle in the 2001 dot-com recession and also in the 2008 Great Recession. So in 2001, there was an overvaluation of all of these dot-com startups. Everyone got really excited about the idea that you can buy all of these domains, you know, pets.com, all of these other dot-coms that investors thought, wow, now that there's the internet, people are gonna be able to really capitalize on the entire pet market. And therefore, pets.com is gonna be worth billions of dollars. It turned out that a lot of this was just hype and so after 2001 these companies hit their peak and then there was a massive sell-off and the valuation of these companies declined dramatically and in 2008 likewise rather than tech startups there was real estate prices that got out of control where people didn't want to miss out on the gains of owning real estate because real estate prices kept climbing higher and higher and higher so because of that, people who shouldn't have bought homes because they didn't have the financial underpinnings to be able to pay for those homes were buying homes and taking out loans. And banks were giving loans to those people when really they shouldn't have because the bankers wanted a piece of that, those gains as well. And at a certain point, the market hit its peak, it declined, and then we saw interest rates go close to zero. And there was also a stimulus package in 2008, and we were able to recover from that. It took about nine months uh, for the market to bottom out, and then uh, it recovered. And so these were both instances of the short-term debt cycle. And this is distinct from the long-term debt cycle. Because, so whereas the short-term debt cycle only lasts five to eight years, the long-term debt cycle typically lasts between 75 to 100 years. So over decades, debts tend to grow faster than income because people push it. They borrow more and more from their future selves, putting off the time that they have to repay those debts. And at a certain point, the debt burden gets so great that people are forced to cut back on their spending and start repaying their debts. So they have to not focus on growth and they have to start focusing on just paying back the debts that they already have. And since one person's spending is another person's income, they, the cycle feeds on itself in a negative direction. So this is really similar to what happens in the short-term debt cycle, but the key difference is that here, the central banks can't lower interest rates to save the day because interest rates have already been cut to zero or near zero and people are still reluctant to spend money to buy goods and services and to make investments. So interest rates hit zero during the Great Depression in 1930. Interest rates hit zero again in the 2008 financial crisis. And now again in 2020, interest rates have hit zero and it looks like that we haven't seen the worst of it yet. So this leads to another question. So central banks have already lowered interest rates. What can they do or what can the government do to fix the economy aside from lowering interest rates? And there are really four options. There's cut spending, meaning the government can stop spending so much so that it's better able to pay back its debts. The other option is to reduce debt so the government can reduce its debt by paying back its debt, it can renegotiate its debt, it can also eliminate some of the debt of citizens, like for instance, you could forgive a lot of college loans would be one possibility. You could redistribute wealth, you can tax the wealthy and give money to the people who are less wealthy, and you can print money, uh, what's known as quantitative easing. And it's worth noting that nowadays it's not really like you print physical money, it's more like 
you add you know a few zeros to the bank uh, the major banks or just add, you know allow some banks to add money or buy back stocks buy bonds buy treasury bills as a way of increasing the value of those assets so in 2020 it's unlikely that the government will cut spending right now we haven't seen any hint of that it also seems unlikely that the government will reduce its debt in fact we're massively increasing our debt and increasing our spending we are seeing an effort to redistribute wealth although so far it's just in the form of $1,200 one-time payment which to me doesn't seem like enough to really change the psychology of someone and make them feel like they're they're comfortable enough to start spending money in the economy again and then of course printing money and that's really the biggest part of the solution here where the government is buying a lot of assets which we already saw the stock market has recovered a lot partially because of the two trillion dollar stimulus package that's going to bail out money, increase the value of assets. And with printing money, there's always the concern that you could have runaway inflation. So Germany experienced this where people had literally wheelbarrows full of cash to buy some milk and eggs because people just totally lost confidence in the value of the currency because they were printing so much of it, it basically became meaningless paper. So we certainly want to avoid that. So taking all of these concepts into consideration, by Ray Dalio's analysis, we are at the end of the short-term debt cycle, we are at the end of the long-term debt cycle, and we are seeing very slow productivity growth. None of this bodes well for the future of the economy. And Guy uh, Kiyosaki, who wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad, he likens this situation to how a surfer would see the waves where there was one wave that happened 2001 another wave that happened in 2008 and as any surfer knows typically the third wave of any set is the biggest and that's 2020 so all of this is pointing to the direction that we may be entering not only a recession but a depression and it may not last nearly as long as other depressions because we live in a modern world now where markets move much faster, information moves much faster, people make decisions and respond more quickly. But as far as the level of loss in dollar value, as far as the level of unemployment that we may see, and as far as the, the time it may take for all of these costs to be taken into account, we may be in a depression already, even though we don't know it and it hasn't been reflected in the stock market yet. And one telling indicator, more so perhaps than any other, is the jobs numbers, specifically weekly jobless claims. These are people who file for unemployment in their state. And when you look at this chart, it's just incredible. I mean, since 1967 to 2020, it never gets above a million. And in fact, most of the time it's you know, less than 250,000. And then you just see this absolutely shoot up in 2020 to about 3.3 million jobless claims in just one week. Economists were projecting that we might reach that by summer. We reached it in one week. So now experts are anticipating that we may see as much as 25 to 30% unemployment uh, by this summer, which would be the greatest level of unemployment since the Great Depression. Now, when you think about this indicator, it's so much more real than the stock market because the stock market is all based on algorithms that have certain parameters that determine whether or not they make a trade. And really, it's people who are sort of almost slaves to the stock market seeing what's happening in the stock market and making decisions as a result whereas jobless claims is a much more human level indicator if people don't have a job 
and people aren't earning income and people need to depend on the measly you know, $200, $300 a week that you get in unemployment, that's not going to bode well for the economy. And even if the stock market is doing well now, it seems unlikely that this is the bottom if the what's happening in the job market hasn't yet been fully realized throughout the rest of the economy. And there are a few key other forces that Ray Dalio points out that are also worrisome. So in the same way that we may reach levels of unemployment not seen since the Great Depression, we also have levels of inequality not seen since the Great Depression. And we have a rising power, which is China, competing against an overextended superpower, which is the US. So if this trend continues, it seems likely that China and the US will clash and that it won't necessarily be a peaceful or easy transition. Now, I'm not saying that will be an outright war, but it could be something more like a Cold War or an economic war. And all the while, the US has been having worse numbers, like our education quality has been going down. We've been investing less in education. Our health is going down. US life expectancy is actually going down. Whereas in China, they're getting better at education, their healthcare is getting better, their life expectancy is going up. So when you also look at the long-term indicators for, okay, you know, 20, 30 years from now, what do we think, uh, you know, how, how do we think the economy is going to be in China relative to the U.S.? It seems like all the trends are pointing to China will overtake the U.S. as the global superpower. So that's viewing this all from a historic perspective. Ray Dalio is concerned this could lead to massive social, upheav social upheaval, and it's worrisome, for sure. Ray Dalio also points to the fact, on a, on a more optimistic note, he realizes that some of the greatest innovation happened after the 1930s. And even during, for instance, the space race, so many of our inventions were created because we were really motivated to compete against the USSR. The internet was created, GPS was created. All of these inventions that we now take for granted as being just part of normal life were created out of hard times. So I don't want to portray Ray Dalio's perspective as too pessimistic. While he is really worried about the pattern that we're seeing right now and how that matches other patterns in history, uh, especially during the 1930s, he's also hopeful that this may be the kind of friction that can really spark some incredible companies, incredible inventions, and some great leaps forward as far as our social programs and how we take care of our citizens. So that's Ray Dalio's perspective in a nutshell. Now I want to take another perspective, which is from Chamath uh, Palahaptia. He's a Silicon Valley investor. I highly recommend a new podcast that he just unveiled with Jason Calacanis, another VC, called the All In Podcast. And I've really been fascinated by his takes on the economy in the last few episodes. So I want to explore his perspective right now. Chamath makes a case for what he calls compassionate capitalism. And this would amount to, rather than simply bailing out a lot of these businesses that are in trouble right now as a result of the economy closing, we would actually take some equity from these companies and use that equity as a way of generating wealth and income, healthcare, fund other programs for all U.S. citizens. So just like how if you have a struggling startup, like, you know, let's say WeWork is really struggling, they have a lot of debt, they're not doing too well, you may have an outside investor come in and basically say, okay, we'll give you all this money to get you out of your tough times, but we're going to take a major equity stake. We're going to take 20% equity stake in this company in exchange for us giving you all this money to get you out of your tight situation. 
on the same way that that happens in the private sector, we could do something in the public sector where, for instance, the airlines, so the airline industry, they're going to be first in line for these bailouts. But they didn't necessarily govern their businesses responsibly. And in fact, the airlines spent 96% of all their profits in the last however many years on buying back stocks. Now, the reason they're buying back shares of their own company is so they can increase their earnings per share. Earnings per share is how they calculate CEO bonuses. So rather than the airlines taking their profits and reinvesting it to actually create better airplanes, you know, better seats, better entertainment, better customer service, or just putting that money in the bank so they have a bit of a safety net in case there's an economic downturn like we're experiencing right now. Instead of that, they just use the money to buy back shares so they could have greater CEO pay. This is really not okay. And if we bail out the airlines with a blank check, then we're essentially rewarding them for bad behavior. So what Shamath proposes is that rather than just bailing out these airlines, we give them money, but we take an equity stake, and then the revenue from these airlines in the future becomes part of the U.S. Uh, economy's backbone. And that can be used to fund programs like Medicare, Medicaid, uh, if we have a universal health care program in the future, if we have UBI, and we could do the same sort of things with uh, other big tech companies as well. And he makes the point that already big tech companies like Apple and Google, they're already operating like quasi-government organizations. Google is has already developed a search engine for coronavirus. Apple just came out with their own coronavirus tracking app uh, in conjunction with the CDC. Amazon is getting into the healthcare space with their Amazon Cares uh, sub company. And these companies, they're not just becoming a backbone of the U.S. economy, they're actually becoming part of the core infrastructure of services that the U.S. that the U.S. government offers to its citizens. So Chamath envisions a future where the government owns part of all of these companies and then we basically are able to tax them, use some of the proceeds of those taxes, distribute them to citizens, and that will give us a long-term trajectory of success and well-being for all citizens, even if not every citizen is able to contribute in the workforce in the same way that they have been in the past. On an international level, Chamath notes that the U.S. is actually in a much better position than many other countries, precisely because we have big tech companies like Apple and Amazon and Google, which we can tax to generate long-term wealth to pay for key programs. And Chamath thinks that the European Union, unfortunately, is likely to collapse because they're going to be really saddled with debt. We're projecting levels of debt as a result of coronavirus as much as 150% of GDP. We haven't seen that level of debt since uh, World War II. For instance, I think after World War II, Britain was in debt about 140% of GDP. So we're seeing wartime levels of debt that are gonna need to be paid back. And what Chamath is concerned about is that once Germany realizes and other wealthier countries in the EU realize that they're gonna have to make some sacrifices of their own citizens in order to help out these other countries to get out of their debt burden, they may decide to leave the EU, just like how Britain decided to Brexit. And if that happens, the whole EU could sort of collapse. And so Chamath thinks that because U.S. has these big tech companies and because the U.S. dollar is the backup reserve currency for at least the free world, you know, for all countries that don't want to be beholden to China's sphere of influence, that it's likely we will see some really difficult times for countries in the EU. Chamath also talks about, just from an individual perspective and an investor perspective, 
how we should think about this crisis. So I want to explore those two perspectives right now. So from an individual perspective, he made this point that when you're in home in quarantine for weeks on end, the experience he has had is that, you know, why do I need all of these jeans, all these fancy clothes? Like, why do I go on all these business trips that are pretty much meaningless and could have been a Zoom call? Why do I pay all this money for this fancy office in the center of downtown when everyone's working just fine on their own at home? So what he projects is going to happen on an individual level is even once the shutdown ends and people are able to go back into the world, people will spend less money. They'll tighten their belts because they realize, A, they don't need to spend as much as they used to, and B, it's good to have a bit of a safety net in case there are some hard times like the ones we're experiencing right now. So on an individual level, Chamath thinks that there will be a slowdown in spending and therefore a slowdown in the economy in not just the near term, but also the medium term. And then on an investor level, he is considering what investors are doing right now. And I also want to point out that Samil Shah, he was a guest on Hence the Future. He just published a blog post where he basically outlines all of his observations of what's happening in the investor community. And the one word he used to describe it is triage. So you've probably heard a lot of doctors talk about triaging where you only have a few ventilators and you have a dozen patients. You have to decide which patients are worth it to give them the ventilator. So they make all these really tough decisions on how old someone is, how likely it is that they'll benefit from the ventilator, even things like how many kids they have. And using all of this, they decide who's gonna live and who's gonna die. In a less dramatic sense, investors are doing the same thing with their businesses. They're looking at all of the financial sheets of all the businesses they've invested in, and they're deciding which of these businesses are in big trouble, which of them are okay, and which of them are just in a little bit of trouble that we could potentially save and they'll still be successful in the long run. And the businesses that are burning a lot of cash, that have a high burn rate, and the businesses that have been particularly affected by the shutdown, so anything that is relating to travel or being in big crowds or anything in real life really has taken a hit from this. And anything that isn't close to profitability, close to being cash flow positive, is also a business that's gonna be deeply in trouble. So from an investor perspective, you're not gonna make a bunch of big bets right now, you're likely to also be tightening your belt and only invest in the companies that you think really have a viability from just a raw cash flow profitability perspective in the in the short run. And it's true that when the when asset prices are down, you can get a better deal. So I'm sure there are investors who are seeing this as a buying opportunity. But the really savvy and sophisticated investors, they realize that the market hasn't bottomed out yet. So at the very least, they're going to wait three months, six months, nine months until they make some big buying decisions. And in the meantime, it's all triage. They're cutting investments that they think are going to be a drag. And they're really just focusing on maximum runway. Chamath even says that he's, he's recommending for the companies in his portfolio that they have 36 months of runway to get through this crisis. That's three years of runway that he's anticipating they will need in order to be on the safe side. So this could be something that takes a year or two or more to rebound from Chamath's perspectives. On the bright side, he... Chamath also notes that this is, quote, one of the few buying opportunities of his lifetime. So if you're a young person now, I wouldn't think of this purely as negative. I would also think of this as a major opportunity to buy Amazon for less than $2,000 a share or to 
start a company and have you know lower costs and be able to tap into the remote workforce or to buy a home once the real estate market tanks at a lower price than you would be able to before or maybe simply rent gets a little bit cheaper all of these are opportunities where you can really build something for yourself in the long run as long as you're patient and you have an unemotional process for how you go about investing and a lot of investors now you know it's really hard to know when the bottom is so a lot of investors are recommending just buying a little bit each week gradually so that you sort of average out the bottoms but personally i think it's probably good to wait a few weeks before you even start doing that because from my perspective it doesn't seem like we're even close to hitting the bottom and i would wait until after this major rebound of, of stocks has completed and it starts moving back in the negative direction now now that i've given an overview of what Ray Dalio's perspective is and what Chamath's perspective is, I want to explore the future scenarios. Here's my worst case scenario for the future of the world economy. Worst case scenario. In my worst case, the effects of the virus become worse in the US than projected, which means we need to shut down longer so right now it's projected that we'll be shut down until April 30th is, is likely. If we see really soaring death rates and infection rates and the healthcare system is overstrained, especially in big cities, we could see the shutdown go into May, possibly beyond May, into June or July. That would be the worst case, not only because it means more deaths and more strain in our healthcare system, but also because it would seriously increase the impact on the economy. The unemployment claims have been climbing tremendously. If they continue to climb into April and May and June, particularly when people have to pay rent in April and May and June and all the other expenses that go along with life, it could be a really difficult situation for us to recover from. In my worst case, the virus becoming worse and lockdown going for longer and unemployment claims rising would eventually be realized in the stock market, the real estate market, and essentially all asset prices would fall as the reality of the situation sinks in. In my worst case, the U.S. does hit unemployment levels not seen since the Great Depression. So by this summer, we could see 25 to 30 percent of all workers unemployed. And we could see similar levels of unemployment throughout the world, not just the U.S. Likewise, throughout the U.S., we could see levels of social unrest, uh, looting, riots. Even in Chicago, my, my dad, who's there right now, was saying that on Michigan Avenue, they're literally boarding up businesses and windows because they're concerned that with all of this uh, economic unease that there's going to be a lot of crime and robberies and that sort of thing and obviously it's a greater issue in emerging countries that maybe don't have as much of a police force or ability to deal with that uh, than in places like you know, Chicago which has a lot of crime but also has a, a lot of police presence in my worst case it also is the case that the US and wealthy European countries are not willing to bail out more struggling countries. So I think Chamath's concern about the EU collapsing, it's not necessarily what's likely to happen in my view, but it is something that we should be worried about and we should take steps to prevent. So I could see a situation where we're moving more towards national economies and away from global economies and as a result every country is really just focused on protecting its own citizens and you know when there's like you know Slovenia and Slovakia and all of these countries that really need someone like Germany to step up and be the the big parent in the situation and help them through these tough times just like how Germany helped Greece through their debt crisis 
maybe Germany is not up for it this time and they want to focus on their own citizens and maybe they exit the EU just like Britain did and then other, you know, France exits the EU and all of a sudden Europe uh, turns into more of like a piecemeal, you know, country by country economy rather than one coherent European economy. Uh, another concern I have in the worst case is that emerging countries who are left behind and who need to be bailed out because they have 150%, 200% of GDP worth of debt, that they become part of China's sphere of influence because that's one of their only real options to be bailed out. And over time, China's sphere of influence could become more powerful than the U.S., especially if trends continue and the U.S. doesn't seriously improve our education, our health care, and other fundamental building blocks of a good economy. And if that continues, we could find ourselves living in a world with less freedom. The other worst-case scenario from a global financial perspective is if the U.S. dollar collapses. Now, I do not think this is likely, especially because it is sort of the reserve currency for the free world, but it's also not impossible. If the only thing we do in response to this crisis is print tons of money, lots of quantitative easing, and we don't cut our spending, we don't redistribute wealth any more than the $1,200 checks, then my concern is we could see people lose confidence in the U.S. dollar and that would be a serious issue. If people don't have any value for all the savings they've put in the bank, then that could be serious levels of civil unrest. It could lead to war. People have speculated that that would result in some sort of new like global currency that would be created. But that would really be turning the world upside down. And I'm not saying that's at all likely. But it's something we should be careful about. We can't just pump unlimited amounts of money into the economy without any repercussions. We really should focus on getting our uh, deficits in order. So at the very least, we're not uh, losing more and more money every year and we're able to pay back at least a little bit of our debt. I think even just doing that would restore a lot of confidence and the more we can do to redistribute wealth in a way that's equitable, uh, whether it's through UBI or, or some other form, I think that also would create a lot of uh, confidence in people to actually go out and spend because they know they're not going to be totally penniless. Um, so yeah, my worst case scenario is, is uh, EU collapses, China's sphere of influence grows, authoritarianism and nationalism rise in the U.S., and in the worst, worst case, we could see a currency collapse situation like how Germany's uh, had runaway inflation in the 1930s and 40s. Now let's move to the best case scenario. Best case scenario. One of the biggest arguments I've seen to be optimistic about this crisis is that unlike in 2001 and 2008, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy this time. It's not like bankers got greedy and had you know low quality loans for real estate like in 2008. It's not like we're massively overvaluing all of these dot-com startups like in 2001. Instead, this is like almost like a natural disaster like a hurricane that's just lasted way longer than normal. So maybe, the optimists say, we will be able to recover far more quickly because the market is fundamentally fine. There's nothing wrong with it. However, my pushback to that would be that, yeah, it's true, nothing's fundamentally wrong with the economy, but for all the reasons that Ray Dalio lays out, we are at the end of our short-term debt cycle. We are at the end of our long-term debt cycle. And we are experiencing slow productivity growth. So it may just be the time in our cycle that we need to see a correction, even if there's not, even if the trigger isn't an economic trigger, but instead it's a, natu it's a natural trigger, which is the coronavirus. 
However, in my best case, we are able to recover more quickly than expected because the economy is okay in a fundamental sense. And we also follow up our $2,000 or sorry, $2 trillion stimulus package with a $1 trillion or more infrastructure package, which will get people back to work. I think this is not only what needs to happen, I think it's actually likely because we need to solve the unemployment issue and we need to put people back to work. And there aren't a whole lot of other options to get people back to work while we're under lockdown. Plus, we get the added benefit of having better quality infrastructure, which is uh, in need right now in the U.S. In my best case, this is sort of a wake-up call to individuals to focus less on returns and focus more on impact. I think one of the lessons that a lot of us have taken away from the self-quarantine is to focus really on what matters most. And what matters most is not being ostentatious with your wealth or having lots of material possessions or going on lots of fancy trips that you can brag about on Instagram. What's important is spending time with your family, helping to save the lives of others, taking care of the essential workers in our economy. And if this mindset uh, continues, it could be a tremendous boon for our economy. We could see greater innovation, especially with hard technology, we could have this space race type of mentality where we really focus on exceptionalism in everything that we do and better education for our kids, better healthcare for all of our citizens and better technology for underlying US infrastructure. Especially as we shift from really relying on China to build all of the stuff that we market we could then, uh, we're gonna have to build that in the US and figure out how to do a lot of things that we haven't had to figure out. Like, how do we build an iPhone that is still cheap enough that people will be willing to buy, but we have to build it in the US or we have to build it in South America or somewhere that's definitely not gonna be nearly as inexpensive as if we were building it in China. So there are gonna be some adjustments where a lot of, a lot of products are going to be more expensive. But I think that's all okay as long as we have this mindset of focusing on what's important. And maybe we're not going to upgrade to the new iPhone every year. Maybe we only upgrade every two years. But we're more confident that if something happens, we have enough redundancies in our system that there's not going to be a collapse. And we can focus on quality and making sure that everything is secure and that we're protected against the worst case scenario. One of the greatest benefits from this whole situation is that people are more open to ideas around universal basic income, around universal health care, around helping people with student debt and possibly offering education for free at some level. And all of these are important for a fundamentally good economy. So I could imagine a best case scenario where we do tax the big tech, the big tech companies more than we have been. We do have an equity stake in all of the major tech companies and big companies like airlines. And that really helps us to provide the basic needs for all of our citizens. And then citizens can focus on what matters most to them, what they're most passionate about. And on a social level, it could be no long, you know, no longer is it just cool to make as much money as possible and have as much of a profit margin. We may see a shift where what's really most valued is doing something that has maximum impact. So we could focus more on you know, colonizing Mars and creating universal health care and extending life and educating all people and other global missions like tackling climate change. And these will likely be the major areas of focus in the future and beyond. And I would always want to bet on American innovation, ingenuity, and just doing what the U.S. does best, which is taking risks, innovating, trying hard, failing, and then getting back up and trying again. And I think if we provide a basic level 
of security for all Americans, then the amount of innovation we're going to see in the next 10 years is going to be incredible. And it doesn't have to be the case that China totally overtakes the U.S. and becomes the dominant power and all the civil liberties disappear. It could be the case that this is just the motivation we need to really make a leap forward, make a change, and then reestablish ourselves as the innovative power that can help facilitate democracy and a good standard of living and human rights throughout the world. So, I, and I, I can't emphasize enough that the strength of the U.S. is about the idea of what it means to be an American, which is being free. You know, even if an enemy soldier is wounded, we take that enemy in and we give him medical support. And it's not what's in our best interest, but that's just what it means to be a good American. And I think that's what's going to help us survive in the long run, more so than anything else. So, I, and, and also, the U.S. is likely to partner with a lot of other countries throughout the world, especially in South America and India. And that will help us create redundancies in our supply chain so that we are more resilient. And it's also a great opportunity for these other countries who can now get some of the business from China and become manufacturers for the iPhone or for any other products that we have. So I could see a situation where there is a, there is a sphere of influence of the U.S., which is essentially the free world, and over time, maybe the people in China will realize they want to be a part of the free world and they care about human rights and they want to be able to sell whatever books they want and not have the government come and throw them in jail for selling some books that are not approved by the Communist Party. And we could then set the stage for us collectively as a global society really solving the problems that matter most, which is you know, climate change, preventing asteroids, uh, extending life, creating beneficial AI. All right, now let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. Given the record number of jobless claims, it's really hard for me to believe that the market has hit the bottom. So in my most likely case, we have not hit the bottom yet. I agree with Chamath's assessment that it will take several months minimum to see the full impact of literally closing Earth's economy. And we need to hit a psychological bottom, which will take a lot of time for people to internalize. There's a delay where any economic data we're seeing is about three weeks old minimum. So it will take several months for people to internalize how this affects them, their businesses, how we're not really returning to normal as much as we are finding a new normal. I think a lot of companies, even after this is said and done, are going to realize they don't need to spend as much on fancy offices, that there are some people on their team that even though they seemed really useful when they're in the office every day, making comments in meetings and looking professional, that they're not really contributing that much from a work for home perspective where it's all about your deliverables. So I think we are gonna see a lot of tightening across the board, both from sophisticated investors and from individuals and from businesses, really from all levels of the economy. And this is really tough if you have all your life savings in the market and you're at retirement age or you're near retirement age. This is a difficult time for sure. However, if you're a younger person, this is a major wealth buying opportunity, wealth building and buying opportunity. You'll be able to buy stocks for cheaper, buy houses for cheaper, start businesses and hire people for cheaper. It does seem unavoidable to me in the most likely scenario that the U.S. will decouple from China. That will be a difficult transition because products will be more expensive in the U.S. Ship, you know, shipping will be impacted. Supply chains will need to be rerouted. And it does seem unavoidable that the U.S. will need to tax businesses in order to pay for mounting debt because we are adding a lot to our national debt as a result of these stimulus packages. And eventually, we're going to need to pay that debt back. So either we tax individual citizens, which I don't think is very likely, given how much Americans do not like taxes, additional taxes, 
or we tax wealthy people or we tax businesses. It could be the case that we end up taxing the 1%, but I think that's somewhat unlikely given how much of an effort wealthy people and billionaires will make so that they don't get taxed, especially from a wealth tax. I think an income tax is far more likely than a wealth tax. But I think a business tax is probably the most likely. And it actually may be a good thing and the right move where we could tax the businesses like Amazon, Apple, and Google that are already the backbone of the U.S. and they can become a backbone of the U.S. government's uh, core services. So we should build on our strengths and not always see these big tech companies as evil. You know, they certainly aren't doing everything in the ideal way, but they are part of what makes America really great and what makes us exceptional throughout the world. And I can envision a world where Americans fo focus on what they're passionate about in life and other companies, or sorry, other countries are going to also tax these big companies. You know, France just levied a $1 billion tax against Amazon. I think a lot of other countries are going to do the same so that in order to operate in different countries, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, they're all going to be taxed to some degree, and that'll help other countries get some income. But I also worry that unless other countries are able to innovate and create their own really big tech players, it'll be hard for them to succeed in the long run, unless they find a way to really work themselves into uh, the free world's infrastructure, like if they help out with our manufacturing and that sort of thing, because I worry about the traditional businesses like restaurants and gyms and all the stuff that no matter what country you're in, there's going to be businesses like that. Those will always be around, but they're going to be a, a shrinking piece of the pie and countries can't depend solely on that. They need to focus on what's going to be viable in the long run in the future. And right now it's clear that China and the U.S. are going to have a place in that sort of new world. It's unclear for other countries. And I think a lot of countries are going to have to make a decision of which side they really want to be a part of because there will be a decoupling and there will be a lot of tremendous strain and there's not going to be as much global solidarity to help out all the other countries as we move towards more of a nationalist viewpoint of really just taking care of your own citizens. So, you know, I wish I could wrap this up in a more conclusive way. Whenever you're dealing with a topic of, that's this massive and this multivariate, it's hard to come to any major conclusions. There's so much uncertainty. So all I can say to end this episode is that I wish the best for you and for everyone around. I, the most important thing right now is to stay sane and to stay healthy and to really try to be optimistic without being unrealistic. Also to be patient and wait until the time is right to make market moves and really to focus on what's most important. And I think that's the biggest lesson from all of this. And if we can view that as a worthwhile lesson and a silver lining to all this, I think we can come out of this much stronger, much more resilient, and set the stage for real productivity growth now into the future. And someone made a comment that all of the babies born during quarantine will be like another baby boomer generation because they were born during a really difficult time and everything was basically uphill from there. Everything got better throughout their life just like how baby boomers born after World War II went from really bad times to much better times where people live within their means, there were rising asset prices, people got to live the American dream. So that can be what we're experiencing, or what we experience in the future, and that's certainly my hope. So thank you everyone for listening. This has been the Future of the World Economy. What is currently and happening we'll see you next time. and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. The past, the present, and the future. Baby. What's the world coming to? The past, the present, and the